It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That crazy starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a machine, listen to yourself, the world with its own needs. Let me bring your own head, beat it up, and I've seen got no seats. The ladder puts the platter with the fear fight down. I fire in the fire, Mr. Chicken Southern Gang, and the government for hiring the combat site. But you wasn't coming in a hurry, but you're eating it down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. It's the hour of doom as we know it. Is it the Hour of Doom? Yes, it's the Hour of Doom, ladies and gentlemen. No, it is the Hour of Bloom. Well, we... How many times do I have to tell you? We will agree to disagree. No, think positive. Oh, you know, I can't do that. (laughs) Hey, friends and neighbors, welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour, a time of tranquility in a... (laughs) Tremulous world. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over 900, almost 1,000 videos, posts, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. And you are? Amy Alton. I am also known as Nurse Amy, and I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. And we are the courageous couple, the queen and the codger, the people that are going to help you keep it together, even if everything else falls apart. Friends and neighbors. Yes. Have you been injured in an accident? No, not lately. With a lascivious, um, darn, what begins with an L? Um, lizard. With a lascivious lizard. That's right. Good one. (laughs) Well, our attorney says, don't call me. Call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy and listen to this. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract or provider-patient relationship exists or is implied between the host and listeners. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Ah, when the chips are down, when the situation is situational, what are you going to do? What if the rescue helicopter, what if the ambulance is just not on the way? What are you going to do? Well, you know what? You're going to show the world that you're smarter than a box of frogs by learning what to do for injuries and illnesses. And guess what? You're going to do it before a disaster occurs. And while you're at it, get some supplies and a medical kit to go along with all that knowledge. And what better place to get it than the lovely Nurse Amy's entire line of often imitated, never equaled medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. They'll help you out of a jam in tough times, that's for sure. And they're designed by 
me, a medical doctor, and her, her. the most awesome she. registered <laughs> nurse practitioner. Is that what it stands for? ARMP, awesome registered nurse practitioner? Awesome. <laughs> That's right. Yes. And, I'll agree with that. And you should agree with it. If you want to compare our kits for our, their contents, quality, and cost, please do. If you do, or just ask anyone who's ever bought one of our kits, you'll agree our kits are the ones that you should have in your medical storage. Hey, what's the gist, physicist? We learn as much from you as you do from us, so why not connect with us? It's so easy. It's so easy. It's so easy. Oh, it's so easy. Here's the lovely nurse Amy to tell you how. I'm glad I didn't start a singing career. Although I have to say I wanted <laughs> you have, to. You have a very nice voice. What are you talking about? <laughs> no. What you talking Don't about? Don't ask me to sing happy birthday. Not mm. happening. All right. You can contact us by email at drbonespodcast at aol.com. Find us on Facebook at our group Survival Medicine, DR Bones and Nurse Amy. Uh, we also have a couple of Facebook pages you can like and get notifications from that's doom and bloom tm probably has a tm at the end because it's trademarked and mm. also doctor spelled out dr bones and nurse amy show and you can also like uh joe alton md that's true i like you what else oh i do you well <laughs> that's one we have there you go one, one follower person. hello yeah. twitter is at prepper show and don't forget our YouTube channel at DR Bones Nurse Amy. And don't forget our other podcast, all about current events, American Survival Radio, now broadcast from a number of radio stations throughout the country in Texas, Oregon, Alaska, wow, all over the place, and a bunch of other internet radio stations, including Talk 365, KIMB, our good friends at the Prepper Broadcasting Network and other great networks. All right, speaking of all over the country, when do you want to tell people where we're going to be all over the country? You want to speak a little first? Well, I could speak a little first if you have the time. You can go first. Oh, okay. That's great. Give well, them some education. Some ed entertainment and education. Edu we call it edutainment. There you go. That was the word I was looking for. I was like, <laughs> wait, how do we combine those two words? I know you have a perfect word for it. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, I've often said in a major disaster, we're going to be thrown back to a bygone era where modern medicine is just not an option. Indeed, you can expect pretty much Civil War type statistics with regards to the outcomes of major abdominal and chest trauma. But you know what? We're still going to be ahead of our ancestors, even if we're thrown off the grid. And that's because of our knowledge of antiseptic techniques. The word antiseptic comes from the Greek words anti, against. Everybody knows that. And septicos, which means putrid or rotten. Antiseptics are substances that have antimicrobial properties. They're applied to living tissue to reduce the possibility of infection. Antiseptics, it should be no noted, are not antibiotics. That's different. Antibiotics are meant to destroy bacteria that is within the body. So you are not using an antibiotic if you're using an antiseptic. Antiseptics are also different in most cases, from disinfectants, which destroy germs that are found on non-living objects like uh, kitchen counters and things like that, or your survival sick room counters. All of these are really important supplies for the survival medic to have, so you need antiseptics, you need antibiotics, you need disinfectants. Now, we have a lot of uh, videos on our website that discuss antibiotics and what your options are in a survival scenario. Uh, if you haven't been to the website of doomandbloom.net, just use the search engine in the upper right-hand corner. You'll find there are more 
There's more stuff on antibiotics than you can shake a stick at. We haven't, however, talked a lot about antiseptics. So let's discuss the most popular types that are on the market that might be candidates for your survival medical kit. One of them is iodophores. Iodophores like betadine contain iodine, a substance which can also be used to purify water, but is combined with something called the solubilizing agent, povidone, and that makes it, unlike pure iodine, relatively non-irritating and non-toxic to living tissue. And that also allows you to use it in relatively strong strengths, I guess, or, or strong versions, strong concentrations of it. Iodoforms work against a broad array of microorganisms. They don't need to be heavily diluted, although I will admit that I do dilute my betadine if I use it on open wounds for regular dressing changes, anything other than maybe a first cleaning. Iodoforms are effective in killing microbes within just a few minutes, so they're fast-acting and they are reliable. Now, the other one that you might consider, another one that you might consider, is called chlorhexidine, actually chlorhexidine gluconate. And this substance is better known by its brand name, Hibiclens, and it's helpful against many different types of germs, although not really very effective against funguses. So against fungal infections, not so good. Against other things like viruses, bacteria, pretty good. It's relatively long-lasting, however, compared to some other antiseptics, so that's another good thing about Hibiclens. It's a very popular way to prepare areas for surgeries and for healthcare providers. They use it a lot to scrub their hands before they have an encounter with a patient. So that is another one that you might consider. Of course, there's the old standby alcohol. Ethyl alcohol, also called ethanol, is the one that you can ingest in the form of whiskey or other wonderful alcoholic products. And Sorry about that. And no I'm problem. for the roofers. Yes, the roofers. Yes, we have a hole in our roof. And Not I might, yet. Not and yet. I might drown. <laughs> da, 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 I might. Okay. So I was talking about. Put that on on ringer, not off ringer, and I on did. vibrate. I put bud. it on mute. Okay. Well, hopefully the roofers will call me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. So ethyl alcohol called ethanol is something that you can actually ingest. A tried and true antiseptic product. The uh, one that you can ingest, however, is isopropyl alcohol, uh, uh, oftentimes used as a rubbing alcohol. Uh, and bo but both of these actually kill many different types of microbes, and they're fast acting and in general pretty inexpensive unless you're drinking Shivas Regal or one of those or fancy schmancy liquors. Now the product, <laughs> the, 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 the alcohol that you're using has a problem associated with it. It has a drying effect on skin, the oral cavity, um, any open wounds, uh, the vagina, for example, after childbirth, and it has a tendency to inhibit the development of new cells. So you might use it for an initial wound cleaning, but I really wouldn't suggest it for any type of regular care. Now, benzalkonium chloride, this is another popular one we have in a lot of our kits. Uh, it's uh, short for B, it's long for BZK. BZK is what we actually call it. It's a mild antiseptic, easily tolerated by a lot of people. And one of the most popular first aid wipes or sprays that are on the market. Some say that it has a special effect against the rabies virus, but you know what? I look around and I just can't find a lot of hard data that support this claim. But still, very popular. You'll find it in a lot of different places as a first aid wipe or in sprays. Uh, hydrogen peroxide, this is another one that's very useful. Hydrogen peroxide is used to clean wounds. It reacts with blood to form a pretty impressive foam. And this is because blood in most cells contain an enzyme called catalase. 
Now, catalase reacts with hydrogen peroxide and converts it into water and oxygen. And this effect makes it popular for household first aid. It looks like it's doing something. Uh, and they use it for common mishaps like abrasions, scrapes, things like that. But it's not really a great candidate for regular dressing changes due to its drying effect on new cells. It's, it seems that it wouldn't be, have a drying effect if it turns into water and oxygen. But indeed, it does seem to slow down the healing of new or the development of new cells that are trying to fill in, let's say, an open wound. It can be used, however, as a mouth rinse in the oral cavity, which makes it a candidate as an antiseptic for a survival dental kit. So that's something to think about. There's something else called PCMX, and that is parachloral metaxylenol, chloroxylenol for short. And it, this antiseptic is available in more brand names than you can count, Zeosorb, just a bunch of different ones, and oftentimes mixed with other items or other substances based on what they want the product to do. Uh, this uh, substance, PCMX, is it's effective against most germs, but less potent than chlorhexidine iodoforms, although the antiseptic effects appears to last longer than both of them. So it's sort of interesting that you have a very mild uh, antiseptic, maybe not so potent, but it, the effect lasts longer. The problem is, is that PCMX it can be irritating, so it's something that you wouldn't want to use in the oral cavity or other sensitive areas, genital areas, things like that. Now, let's talk a little bit about bleach. Now, bleach is commonly used as a disinfectant, right? It's used more as a disinfectant than antiseptic, but bleach in very dilute solutions of 0.5% or less can make something called Dakin solution. That's a time-honored method to clean wounds. We talked about it a few weeks ago, and Amy put up uh, a couple of videos on how to make it and give you the recipe. And it's really a great item for survival settings where you just don't have access to modern medicine. It's a 100-year-old recipe used in World War I to help prevent and treat infections. And it's easy to make and uses affordable products, basically water, a pot and a pan, heat, and bleach and baking soda. And so that is the whole thing. And so make sure you check out Nurse Amy's video or part, both part one and part two on how to make Dakin solution. It's a pretty useful item. Now, I'm sure you guys out there know probably of more things that you can use as antiseptics for your survival sick room. There are a number of different types of natural products, maybe tea tree oil, things like that, that have a natural type of uh, antiseptic effect. Oh, there's and, a whole list and of And there's just a whole list of these yeah. things. You're absolutely right. And you just have, you have to be careful because some of them can also still be irritating and certainly you don't want to ingest the grand majority of them. They could be dangerous. So the bottom line is if you're armed with antiseptics, your chances of succeeding when everything else fails, at least as a medic, go up exponentially. So make sure to get the supplies and the knowledge and you'll save lives in times of trouble. I just want to say one more thing about the essential oils. Don't apply them straight. They are so incredibly concentrated sure. that you may irritate the skin that you're trying to help heal. <laughs> it's just the complete opposite of what you yes, would like bad. to do. Right. Absolutely. Are you ready? Oh yes. Do you want me to go over? Oh yeah, go over where where are we going to be? We're going to be we're starting our travels well, again. Well, wait. I I have something I have to tell you on air that I don't think I even told are you, you this. Pregnant? No. Oh, <laughs> Fooey. No. I thought you were pregnant. No. Mm -hmm. <laughs>
<laughs> I don't want to be going to a high school dance at that age, <laughs> whatever age that is. Um, no, the eclipse is happening on August 21st. Oh, we're going to be up in that neck of the woods, right? Well, I'm going to get us there earlier. We weren't going to be, Oh. but we're going to go earlier. So we're going to be in Gatlinburg, Tennessee at our house there for the 21st. So that means we've got to leave about five days earlier than we planned. Well, we don't have to. You're the only heavenly body I'm interested in. (laughs) (laughs) Just don't tell everybody that I eclipse the sun (laughs) as I move (laughs) by you. (laughs) Moon over Gatlinburg. All right, you guys can take that any way you want. (laughs) Anyway, so yeah, we're going to see the eclipse. I'm very excited. Um, I'm I'm not sure the exact path of it, but I think Gatlinburg's in the path. Yes, I think from it's, what I'm looking. I know at, you can see it pretty well from North Carolina. Pretty good, I'm, I'm yeah. Told so, so we're going to be right around there. I know it's funny. We just got a, a big order from a police department uh-huh. in Ohio, uh-huh. and um, they'll probably actually let me look be at able the city. To see that pretty the, well. She's, too. She was freaking out. Rigby. Oh, I'm sorry, Ohio. I said Ohio, Idaho. Rigby, oh, wow. Idaho. I don't know about Idaho. Yes. Um, their police department just ordered Some a of our gunshot bunch kits? of our gunshot kits. Well, that's great. Yep. Okay. And, well. But they want them delivered. The reason I'm mentioning this is because they want them delivered before the 21st because they're having a huge turnout in that particular city. Oh, for the eclipse? For the eclipse. All right. Their well. city is being inundated with outsiders. Well, anything we can do to they make... They want to be right. safe. They want to make sure they have the equipment. So she... That was her one request that we get these. So we're going to feverishly pack these. Awesome. You got a deal. And make sure that they're in their hands by Absolutely. the 21st. Absolutely. There's nothing more than I... No problem. That I like to, to keeping our, well, keep our law enforcement officers absolutely. safe. Absolutely. And, and help them keep others safe, too. That's right. So after that, we're going to be going to the Ultimate Outdoor Expo, which sounds like a lot of fun. We haven't done that before. That is a three-day event in Lexington, Kentucky, the 25th, 26th, and 27th of August. Then we'll go to Chattanooga, Tennessee for the RK Prepper Show. That's a two-day event, and we're doing a suture class at 9.30 on Sunday, September 3rd. Awesome. September 9th and 10th, we'll be at another RK Prepper show, but in Knoxville, Tennessee, and we're going to do a second suture class on the 10th, Sunday morning at 9.30. That's right in our neck of the woods. Again, at that RK Prepper show. Then we'll drive home <laughs> for okay. a few days, and then we're going to fly off to the lovely Denver, Colorado. Oh, the wet National Western Complex, probably. Yep, Where are they? That's the Self-Reliance Expo, right. and that's a Friday-Saturday show. They do theirs on Friday-Saturday, and... Uh, that suture class will be at the slow time of the show, Friday afternoon between 1 and 4. So if you're near Denver, Friday, September 22nd, which is actually my older daughter's birthday. Oh. I'm all, we're always doing these shows on holidays. and fun, Birthdays fun, yeah, and anniversaries. Yeah. Anniversary, we've done anniversary. Valentine's, Valentine's Day. Valentine's. I know. Mother's Day, we've done it. Even Father's Day. So anyway, um, October 21st, we're going to do our next eight-hour Survival medicine training class, a lot of good stuff there, folks. Where is that going to be? That is the one uh, we're going to be doing in Sevierville, Tennessee. Okay. It's actually Kodak, Kodak is the hotel, but it's near Sevierville. It's uh, off 41 east of Knoxville. Okay. That's an all-day Saturday class. All right, sounds good. Well, I think you're one more pretty fur down the road there, I'm buddy. Not done. December 3rd, we're doing an eight-hour survival medicine class. Again, that same 
eight-hour training. That's the last two for the whole year, December 3rd. That's in Jacksonville, Florida. That's going to be after a Friday-Saturday show, NPS Expo. NPS Expo, Jacksonville, Florida. Sounds Friday, great. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, we're doing at a different location. Uh, privately, we'll be doing that class. You guys can join. I have limited sign-ups. I think I only have... Um, 20 for that class and there's only 16 oh, for the tennessee class well, that gives us uh the chance to really small we yes, like small like classes and yeah, much easier to deal with yeah. and much happier when we do that well you know last week we talked about fractures and how to set a broken bone and the truth of the matter is that not all sur injuries and survival will be as bad as a fracture but without modern medical imagery like x-rays and cat scans and mris and all that kind of stuff well, how can you tell, say, a sprain from a fracture in some kind of scenario where an orthopedic surgeon couldn't do it either unless it had all the high, unless he or she had all the high technology that exists at the local hospital? Well, believe it or not, there are a number of clues that can let you know when you're dealing with and a fracture and when you're dealing with a sprain, even if you're off the grid and off out in the woods or if you have a few little items you definitely will be able to have a good idea of what you're dealing with now a sprain might have a similar appearance to a non-displaced fracture a non-displaced fracture is where the bones are in alignment uh, in a true fracture in, in a common common fracture you usually will find that the bones may not be in alignment and you wind up having to reduce what they say how they call it the deformity which means that you need to stretch the limb out in order to try to get the bones to realign. We talked about that last week. So how is the survival medic going to tell the difference when he's got a, obviously a, obviously when you have a fracture where the, the foot's pointing in the wrong direction or something is at a 90 degree angle that shouldn't be. <laughs> right. So how do you tell the difference, however, when things are not displaced, when things are pretty well aligned, when an orthopedic surgeon might need x-rays? Well, you want to look for a number of signs. Now, some of these signs are pretty obvious. For example, a fracture often manifests with more severe pain and uh, the complete inability to use the bone. For somebody who has, let's say, an ankle sprain probably can put some weight, although painfully, on the area. If you have broken your ankle, it's almost certain that you're not going, you're going to be carried from the field and you're not going to be just helped from the field. So that's one thing that is important of uh, severe bruising, severe swelling. If you have more pronounced swelling and bruising than you have had for uh, uh, a sprain, almost everybody has that is alive has had a sprain to deal with at one point or another in their life. You know pretty much what that looks like. If if the swelling is more pronounced, the bruising is much more. You're probably dealing with a fracture rather than a sprain. Uh, a grinding sensation, that's something that can be felt when broken ends of a bone rub together. So sometimes pressing upon the bone above the level of the fracture, when I mean above, I mean closer to the torso, that, and feeling the broken ends of the bone rub together as you are moving down the length of the bone, well, that is another sign. Of course, if there's a deep cut at the area of the injury, that's a possible sign of a very dangerous kind of fracture called an open fracture. And that's where the bone uh, actually popped through the skin because of the trauma. Some, in many cases, the bone will stay outside, but in many cases, the bone will retreat back into the body. And that's not good because that means it's gotten contaminated with, at the very least, skin bacteria, maybe much worse. And 
has gone back into the body. And some of these bacteria are meant to be on you. Uh, some of them are normal for your skin, but they're certainly not meant to be in your bone marrow. And they can cause very severe infections like osteomyelitis, can go into circulation, causing some things like septicemia, big problems. So a, a deep cut at the area of an injury, look for an open fracture, probably is a fracture rather than a sprain. Now, a tuning fork on the bone, if you put it on the bone below the level of where you think the fracture occurred, that will result in decreased sound if you're listening with a stethoscope placed above the fracture, closer to the torso. So if you think you know where the break is and you listen with a stethoscope above the fracture and you hit a tuning fork and put it on the bone below a fracture, you probably won't hear it very much or may not hear it at all. In, a intact, in an intact bone, you should hear it. In The, the vibration should carry through the bone, tra uh, conduct through the bone, and you should be able to hear it pretty well. Now, of course, motion of a bone in an area where there's no joint, that's another dead giveaway that you're dealing with a fracture. If you notice that your index finger has five knuckles, well, you probably broke your index finger. So we talked uh, last week about what to do with a broken bone, but we really didn't talk about how to deal with the sprain. Treatment for most sprains, pretty straightforward. Follows a very easy to remember RICE or RICE's protocol, R-I-C-E or R-I-C-E-S. R stands for rest. It's important to avoid further injury by not testing the injured joint. You may not have a choice, but cease whatever actions led to the injury, and that will give you the best chance for a full recovery. Continued strain on the area, that's going to cause the weakened ligament to re-injure itself again and again and again and again. Bad news, and also may make it permanently weak. Uh, I, the I in rice, stands for ice, and cold therapy is very important, especially in the first 24 to 48 hours. It decreases both swelling and pain, and the earlier you apply it after an injury, the more effect it's going to have in speeding up the healing process. If you're in the wilderness, you might have to stick your ankle in a cold stream to get the cooling action. Uh, although you should, in your backpack, in your medical kit, you should have some of those shake and break cold packs. And that will also be very useful in case of an injury. Uh, cold therapy should be performed several times a day if you possibly can uh, for 20 to 30 minutes each time. And that's, again, for the first 24 to 48 hours. Afterwards, it doesn't seem to have as much of an effect. And this is followed every time by adding compression. Compression is the C in rice. And a compression bandage is useful to decrease swelling and should be placed after every cold therapy. And that helps provide support to the joint, um, makes people feel that they have something holding things in stable condition. And if you and, and one thing I think is important, it's important not to just put uh, compression in, but put some padding to the area. If you can put some padding to the area and then wrap an ace wrap around the area, starting below the joint, working your way up, up above it, the wrap should be tight, but not uncomfortably so, and certainly not to the point that it causes a change in color beyond the level of the injury itself, beyond the sprain. You need to have good circulation and no fiddling around there. And uh, people who are dealing with less problems with circulation because things are too tight will experience uh, tingling, maybe increased pain, and maybe get, may get numb. And that tells you the wrap is too tight, should be loosened, of course, an excessively tight wrap. It changes the color of the fingertips and toes. They may become 
white or even blue or you might have trouble feeling a pulse these are things that are important to avoid now e the e in rice r-i-c-e is for elevation and you probably want to elevate the sprain above the level of the heart and that's going to help prevent swelling at the site of the injury swelling is also called edema e-d-e-m-a and it's caused by fluid that pools where the inflammation is and where gravity is allows it to pool by elevating the leg you're allowing the fluid to process itself back into your circulation and aid the healing process well at least won't impede it so sometimes excessive swelling is is going to be a big issue then you want to avoid that and you can help avoiding it by elevating the sprain maybe 12 inches above the level of the heart uh that's rice now some people use the mnemonic rices like two rice rices um and the s in that case stands for stabilization some and immobilizing the injury is going to help prevent further damage and wrapping it is one way that you can help immobilize it but sometimes uh, a compression bandage or an ace wrap is not enough and you might best support a severe sprain with a splint uh, or a cast even and we talked about a cast last time around and uh, last last week and this actually may be helpful in in a even if the bone is not broken in severe cases this strategy helps support the patient who's unable to place a lot of weight on a joint uh, these splints are oftentimes uh, commercially produced such as the versatile structural aluminum malleable splint that's called a sam splint you can find it just about everywhere online or you can improvise it with sticks and cloth or pillows and duct tape a lot of different ways that you can uh, provide padding and allow a sprain to heal there's even these casts that are basically just blow up plastic and you put them over the the joint that has been sprained and it holds it in place so that it can't be moved and allows good stabilization that way so that's r-i-c-e-s rest ice compression elevation and stabilization hey have you experienced a joy that comes with helping the elderly well make an old man that's me very happy and your family medically prepared by checking out a copy of the third edition of the survival medicine handbook the essential guide for when medical help is not on the way it's 700 pages of no nonsense information on over 150 wow different medical issues that you're going to confront in your role as medic in times of trouble and the best thing about it it is written in plain english so if you can read plain english well you can understand the survival medicine handbook make our book a part of your survival library today you can get it at amazon.com you can go to our website doomandbloom.net make sure you're getting the third edition there is a second edition and a first edition you want to get the third edition which has the most updated and the most expanded version of our content believe me you will be glad that you did now we discussed the case of a man who was stranded at sea uh, for 66 days without much ill effect other than weight loss that was probably about a year ago or so and luckily for him he had a sailboat his sailboat was his primary residence and he was able to write it you know basically it was capsizing maybe able to turn it around i guess must not have been a big boat and he actually still kept most of his supplies intact of course he didn't have a mast but this allowed him to ration food and water and gave him cover from the elements now most cases of survival at sea however 
just are not as fortunate as this guy, it's important to have an idea of what to do if you find yourself in open water without the possibility of a rapid rescue. And this makes a lot of sense. Earth is a water planet. Uh, we hardly ever talk about survival at sea but on, on this show. But you know what? A lot of people go out on the ocean and they find themselves in trouble. And there, there are ways that you can increase your chances of being able to survive. Uh, what is it? 70%, I think, of the Earth is, is covered with seawater. And your survival in an ocean disaster will depend on your ability to do a couple of things. To stay hydrated, to obtain nourishment, and especially also to be protected against exposure to wind, sun, temperature extremes. Now, planning for a catastrophic event beforehand, that's going to give you the best chance of survival. So make sure before you board any vessel heading to the high seas, you should have a good idea of what supplies and equipment exist for use in, emer in an emergency these guys, these guys should have a pretty extensive medical kit because, indeed, it's going to be hard to get rescued if you wind up being out there in the out islands of the Bahamas or some other place uh, going through Baffin Sound or some of these other areas where it's just not going to be easy for people to come help. So... Anybody planning an ocean voyage, number one, needs to file what they call a float plan with the marina. So that's like a flight plan for an airplane, but it's a float plan for a boat. It gives people on shore an idea of what, where you're going, when you should be expected back. And uh, that's something, in the case of this guy that was stranded for 66 days in his boat, nobody even realized he was miss missing for more than a week after he capsized. I think he had lived alone on his boat, and people just thought he went cruising somewhere and let's face it the sooner people start looking for you the better your chances are of being rescued right now in rough seas you should always wear a life jacket honestly in calm seas also uh, if you have a whistle attached to it or some noisemaker that's useful if um, if somebody's thrown overboard in this situation that life preserver usually comes with the boat should be attached to a good length of rope uh, and thrown by a crew member can certainly go ahead and, and give you a chance of being rescued. Sometimes a crew member may jump into the water with the life preserver attached to the rope and get to you in case uh, you're injured or somehow not able to help yourself. Now, if your boat capsizes or sinks, rapid action is going to be necessary if you're going to survive. You have, if there's time to send out a distress signal, first thing you do, send a distress signal for goodness sake. Now, luckily, many of the containers for supplies on boats are meant to float. So gather as many of these together as possible. They can help you stay above water, and the supplies could save your life if you think about it, because water is going to be oftentimes cold, certainly colder than 98.6 or whatever your body temperature is, and you will lose heat and can become hypothermic, even in tropical waters. Now, if you're in waters that are used frequently by other boaters or shipping vessels, but not in view of dry land, try to stay near the area where your boat sank because there's likely other boaters will actually be passing by relatively soon. I mentioned hypothermia. That is a major cause of death in boating mishaps. I mean, just look at the Titanic and how many people died who made it into the water with a life preserver on and were dead probably in a short order because of very, very cold water. Water doesn't have to be terribly cold. Uh, and 
you could die of hypothermia, as I said before, off a tropical coast. Here's the average survival times as the water temperature gets colder. Now, if you wind up in 60 to 70 degrees water, I'm talking Fahrenheit, uh, you'll last about 12 hours before you become hypothermic. If you're in 50 to 60 degrees Fahrenheit water, about six hours if you're lucky, 40 to 50 degrees Fahrenheit, about an hour really, and lower than 40 degrees, well, less than an hour, you are in big trouble, just like the folks on the Titanic. Now, to increase your chances of survival when you're immersed in water, keep your clothes on. Button or zip up. Cover your head if you can. You lose a lot of heat from your head. Uh, the layer of water between clothing and your body is actually slightly warmer than the surrounding water and may help insulate you a little bit against the cold. Uh, commercially manufactured anti-exposure suits are... These are like onesie body suits that are, that are really useful additions. If you're going to go boating for a long period of time, maybe encountering rough seas on the way, well, you know what? You might consider adding that to your emergency boating supplies. But when you're in the water, remove clothing only when you're out of the water and then do whatever you can to get dry and warm. Now, you want to get as much of your body's surface area out of the water. That's why I'm saying to either climb onto a capsized boat or get a bunch of containers together, uh, supply containers for the boat together, and make a raft if at all possible. That will increase your chances of survival. However, you probably don't want to use up a lot of energy swimming unless you have a goal, unless you have a dry place to swim to. The swimming strokes that uh, use the least energy are... The dog paddle, the side stroke, the back stroke, and the breast stroke. And you might consider alternating them to use different muscles so you don't get exhausted too quickly. Now, you want to also position yourself, if you're in the water, to lessen heat loss. And that is actually called the HELP position. Heat Escape Lessening Position, H-E-L-P. And that reduces heat loss while you're waiting for help to arrive. And what you do is you just... Hold, get, grab your knees, hold your knees to your chest, and cross your arms, and that helps pr protect your torso, the body core, uh, from heat loss. That's the most important area that you need to have stay warm, if at all possible. Now, if you're with other people, huddle together. If you've fallen into cold water with other people, you want to keep warm by facing each other in a tight circle, holding on to each other. These are tough times, so you may not be the warm and fuzzy type, but... You want to be warm, and so you have to huddle together, and that will give you a, maybe a little extra time. So that's the strategies for people who have life vests. Now, what if you fall into the water and you don't have a life vest? Well, silly you, you probably should have worn your life vest. But if you end up in the water without uh, a jacket, uh, a lot more exertion is going to be required to keep your head above water. And at one point or another, you're going to get tired. If you float on your back, that's helpful. It may require less energy to keep your face out of the water. You arch your back, spread out your arms and legs, and that may allow you to breathe with the least effort, at least. Another way to rest without a life jacket involves relaxing the body in between breaths. Uh, just allow yourself to sort of float. Your head will be underwater. Your face will be underwater, uh, but you inhale while you're treading water, and then you lie down, face down, with your arms forward, and just just lift your head when you need another breath, but it will use the absolute least amount of energy. So that's something that you can consider. Now, of course, anybody who I talk about 
survival at sea with is concerned about, guess what, sharks, of course. Well, every ocean in the, in the world has sharks, although only about 20 or so species are known to attack humans. They're attracted to blood, to urine, to feces, um, to anything, any irregular or thrashing movement in the water. Most people who have seen Shark Week know all about this. Uh, if you're in the water with other swimmers, what you want to do is you want to fa form a circle facing outward instead of inward. Instead of just huddling together, you want to form a circle facing outward so you can better defend yourself. If a shark approaches, slap the water with cup hands. Shouting underwater may deter, deter it, but you may actually really have to try to kick or punch it, especially in sensitive areas. Uh, the snout, if it's not really a snout, I guess, but uh, on the just the front of the the front of the face of the shark, uh, the eyes, the gills. These are areas that are relatively sensitive, and it may discourage a shark. In and of itself, I want to just let you know that playing dead does not discourage an aggressive shark. He's going to take an exploratory bite, and exploratory bites are oftentimes fatal bites if, if the shark is big enough, certainly. Uh, shark skin also, by the way, is extremely abrasive. They often bump into potential prey before they attack, so you should... Make sure to keep your clothing on, including your including your shoes, because let's say their rough skin scrapes you, well, blood from skin that's scraped is going to excite them and have them more interested in making a meal out of you. Of course, a much better way to survive if you're stranded in the ocean is to be in a life raft. And next week, we are going to talk about what to do if you do have a raft and how to last long-term, last as long as possible, so that you have the best chance of being saved. So we're beginning to run a little short of time, so let's have Amy take the stage here. Uh, Amy and I are both members of the Expert Council of the Survival Podcast, the most popular survival podcast, I guess, in in the world. It is uh, hosted by Jack Spearco, and he has a number of experts that are sort of sent to the plate every so often to go to bat and answer questions from his audience. And we found actually a very interesting question. We're talking about motorcycle safety in and what kind of materials and what kind of medical kit a motorcyclist might or bicyclist or pretty much anybody who is not in a car would probably want to have. That would have to be something relatively compact and something very useful, a lot of useful items that don't take up a lot of space. And Amy has figured out what you should have. Here's Amy to tell you a little bit about what she thinks should be in a motorcycle medical kit. And here she is. Hi, Amy Alton, Advanced Registered Nurse Practitioner here and also known as Nurse Amy of the survival medicine website doomandbloom.net. Now with close to 1,000 articles, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness. This week's question for the expert council comes from Doug, who writes, here's one for Nurse Amy. By the way, thanks, Doug, for this. I appreciate it. He says, Whenever weather permits, I commute on my motorcycle and I'm interested in her thoughts on a first aid kit to pack. It's about 20 miles each way, mostly on interstate across Indianapolis. 
I have limited space to carry supplies, so I bring my lunch in a small backpack. I figured the most common accident would be laying a bike down at speed, so there would be a lot of abrasions and bleeding. If it's something more serious, I can't see myself doing much self-aid. What kind of supplies would you recommend? Bandages and clotting supplies? Tourniquets? Thanks for any help, Doug K. Here's a picture of my bike to show there's no storage and because I love it and like showing it off. Nice bike, Doug! Motorcycle injuries can be pretty severe, so as a biker, you know there's always danger when you take the bike out on a highway, more so than cars, where airbags, stability control, and other safeguards offer protection in case of a mishap. In fact, today, Dr. Bones and I were driving along and saw an accident smack dab in front of us. Things happen. In fact, the funny thing is there was a motorcycle on the right of us. So had that truck made a U-turn a little bit earlier, it's possible he could have actually hit the motorcycle. So knowing what can happen when accidents do occur is also a really important part of writing. And I have personal experience with writing. Starting when I was age nine, very young, my dad bought me a beautiful Indian 90 that was reddish-orange and had a badass attitude to boot. We did a lot of off-roading cycling, but some on the roads. Of course, we were in the backwoods areas of Georgia, and uh, my brother and I had four acres to explore, and boy, did we have fun and uh, laid down that bike quite a few times, I will have to say. But when you're young, you bounce a little more. So let's talk about uh, what kind of injuries you can expect From 2001 to 2008, the CDC studied more than a million people who were treated in the U.S. emergency rooms for non-fatal motorcycle-related injuries, then recorded their injuries by location on the body. 30% of all non-fatal motorcycle injuries were recorded on the lower extremities. That makes sense, as whatever leg is draped over the side as you dropped the bike is going to bear some trauma resulting in at least some road rash, but oftentimes much worse. Leather is the material most often used to protect the abrasions that can occur when you dump the bike, so make sure you cover up those areas with leather. Next most common were head and neck injuries, making up to 22% of the total. Those were closely followed by chest, shoulder, and back wounds, then arms and legs, then hips and pelvis. If you're wearing a helmet, which I strongly suggest, I always wore a helmet. My dad made sure none of us got on our cycles without a helmet. So wear your helmet. In one study, three of five motorcyclists involved in a collision were not wearing helmets and had head injuries as a result of the accident. A helmet can mean the difference between death on the pavement and living to ride another day. When you're riding on a slippery road and some driver decides to make a quick left turn without noticing you're there, accidents happen and it pays to have a compact yet effective kit to deal with injuries and especially bleeding from those injuries. This may involve you or one of your riding buddies. I'm talking about more than just having band-aids and alcohol wipes, although these aren't bad ideas. In the case of bikers, you need a lightweight kit. And we have designed one just for you that you can see at store.doomandbloom.net. This includes the following items that can help you deal with bleeding, orthopedic issues, and more. It's called the Jack Spearco and Doug K Motorcycle First Aid Kit. Oh, no. No, I'm sorry. (laughs) Just kidding. 
It's actually the motorcycle first aid kit, although that first one does sound kind of cool. Gloves. Everyone knows you need gloves. Make sure that you have gloves. In my kit, I have gloves. It's going to protect you against infection and also protect the person who you're taking care of that they don't get what's on your dirty hands. Of course, you want to have a pair of EMT shears or bandage scissors to expose the wounds so you can see what you're dealing with. An H&H vacuum pack dressing weighs next to nothing and takes up little load in your pack. The H&H looks like a small square, but it unfolds when opening to 4 by 12 feet long. It's huge. You can place these in any open wounds for direct pressure and just help stop bleeding. Gauze dressings and rolls to wrap around an injured extremity or head or triangular versions that can act as a sling. Tape or safety pins may be important, and the actual triangular bandages do usually have safety pins in them, so it helps to secure them in place. Tourniquets like CAT, C-A-T, or soft tea can help stop heavy bleeding. An alternative to that, which is also lightweight and compact, is a SWAT tourniquet, S-W-A-T, also called stretch, wrap, and tuck. You also might want to consider a pressure dressing. It can serve to slow down and stop bleeding as well, but are also versatile to apply some pressure to a wound. Ace wraps for orthopedic injuries or just to cover wounds. Burn gel and nonstick 4x4 dressings help burns, but also will help cover and take care of road rash. You might want to consider some pain meds like Advil. They have little packs that have two tablets in each packet. A solar mylar blanket to cover an injured biker helps to prevent loss of heat from shock. Small splints might be useful to deal with orthopedic injuries from biker arm and hand injuries where you hold your arm out to brace for impact. An expensive but maybe life-saving addition that doesn't add much weight or size to your pack is Sealox or Quick Clot, which are blood clotting gauzes. This stuff will even help arterial bleeding and might just save your life or your buddy's life. Consider antiseptics like alcohol, betadine, or BZK wipes, along with different size bandages, of course, and maybe some Steri strips. My warehouse manager and biker-obsessed friend, Joe Thompson, actually says the highway is one of the safer places to ride because you can create your own area to ride. He suggests wearing high-visibility clothing to let all those people on their cell phones know you're there every time you mount your motorcycle. You take a risk on the road. Protecting yourself greatly lessens those risks, enabling you to live a longer life. And a small medical pack from Doom and Bloom with important items will help you do that. And make sure to wear your safety gear every single time you ride. This is Nurse Amy wishing you the best of health and good times are bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, have you experienced the joy and satisfaction that goes along with helping the elderly? Well, make an old man, my husband... Very happy and yourself medically prepared by checking out my entire line of medical kits and supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. And that's the incredible, amazing Nurse Amy with, I think, a very useful and reasonable list of medical supplies that you might consider if you're a biker or a, or a biker, depending on what kind of bike you happen to like to ride. Well, that's all the time that we have this go-round. I really appreciate your listening to 
our show, The Survival Medicine Hour, with uh, the lovely nurse Amy and myself, Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones. Uh, you will hear us on a weekly basis. I hope that you will follow us on Twitter at Prepper Show and check out our YouTube channel, DR Bones Nurse Amy. We are here for you. Our mission is to put a medically prepared person in every family, and we will not rest until we have accomplished that mission. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.